7. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And um, this morning I am going to read from the New King James. Uh, it will become clear uh, when we come to the message uh, as to why uh, I am doing that. Uh, I believe it's a better translation overall. Uh, so I'm going to break with my usual uh, habit. So if you're wanting to follow in the Church Bible, um, it will be page 1148. Uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 7, remembering that before this, uh, Paul has written about uh, the um, union that comes through uh, a man and woman coming together, the two shall become one, chapter 6, verse 15, uh, verse 16, that's God's purpose uh, for the sexual relationship. Then Paul ended in verse 20 uh, with the command, glorify God in your body. Uh, and there are many connections in this next section back, uh, word-wise, to what Paul writes in chapter 6. So, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. <coughs> Nevertheless, because of sexual immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. Stop defrauding one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all people were even as I am myself. But... Each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Amen. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And if you're following in the NIV, it's page 1148. And now we are beginning the second major part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In chapters 1 to 6, Paul deals with his issues, things that he has heard from Chloe's household, and perhaps in other ways that concern him about the life of the congregation and uh, he has now finished those at the end of chapter 6 but you will see 
that one of the issues, uh, the next matter that he comes to deal with, which is one of their issues that they have raised, ties very closely back into what has gone before as another aspect uh, of the same problem, human sexuality within Corinth as a Christian. So Paul now begins chapter 7 and he says, Now concerning the things you wrote to me. That's the phrase. Uh, We will meet a further five times. We'll find it in verse 25 of this chapter. Chapter 8 verse 1. Chapter 12 verse 1. Chapter 16 verse 1. And chapter 16 verse 12. And so Paul in broad terms deals with six major issues um, within uh, the church at Corinth. Questions that they have put to him. And he uses this formula, now concerning the things you wrote to me each time uh, to move from one to the other. And first up is marriage. And specifically the place of sexual relations within marriage. There are at least two groups um, or two types of thinking within the church at Corinth. There are those engaging in sexual relationships outside of marriage, which Paul has already dealt with in chapter 5 and 6. They are those who have a very liberal attitude uh, and uh, they have a thought that, well, it doesn't matter what we do in or with our body. And Paul has already dealt very clearly, very firmly and categorically with that by, and it was summed up in the closing words of chapter 6, glorify God in your body. Your body is not a tomb. Your body is not yours to do whatever you want with. Your body is a temple with which to worship and glorify God. And now we come to the second group. Uh, And we need to understand and we have to approach chapter 7 with this group in mind. Um, I thought when I was... Um, got through chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, it would get easier. (laughs) I found every chapter gets more challenging. And this is one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied books of Scripture because there is so much background and if you simply come at face value, you will go wrong in all kinds of directions. So, the second group that we need to be aware with, aware of. They are Christians in marriages primarily and they are avoiding the sexual relationship within marriage now as Christians. They think that they are being more spiritual. And again, it's another Uh, aspect uh, of this Greek idea that uh, the body is sinful uh, and is to be shunned. 
Uh, and so, some people um, followed that through one way, a disregard for the body, and others followed it through in this way. And the, this group makes it a test of spirituality. You are a better Christian if you abstain from sexual relationships within your marriage. That's the context here. Now, verses 1 to 16 are addressed to those who are married primarily, with the exception of 8 and 9, which are addressed to singles and widows. Then, uh, from verse uh, 17 on uh, to verse uh, 24, Paul will talk about each person having their calling. We touched on that already this morning. And then he will come back to the singles and the widows. So there's really um, two big groups that Paul is addressing. The married and those who are singles, uh, never married, or widows because their husband has died. And uh, this morning uh, we want to look at verses 1 uh, through to 7. And then next week we will take up from verse 10 through to verse 16. We will keep 8 and 9 and take them with 25 through because that's where they tie in. Uh, and then we probably will do something separate on the calling again. So that's where we're going uh, this, uh, in this chapter. I decided as opposed to trying to do 17 verses in one go, that we needed to break it down. So this morning is the first seven verses where Paul is making a single point. So it's a one-point sermon this morning. Do not abstain from sexual relations within your marriage. That's what Paul is saying to Christians in Corinth. That's what he's saying to Christians in Canic Fergus today. That's what he's saying to us today. God is saying to us through Paul. Now, we need to begin then with the words this morning that we find in verse 1b. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. A much misused and wrongly understood verse. And people take this verse and they say, well, Paul actually elevates celibacy and singleness as better than being married. We have to ask the question, and uh, we will come to it in a moment, whose words are these? But before we come to that, we need to notice what is what these words mean I didn't read from the NIV this morning because the NIV paraphrases this verse as uh, this statement as it is good for a man not to marry and you see that's the basis upon which people say well marriage is somehow inferior that's a very unfortunate translation two things are wrong here or are amiss 
First, the NIV, NIV leaves out the words, a woman. A woman. Uh, and we should not leave out words that are there in the original scripture. Someone wanting to defend the NIV could say, well, the words a woman are unnecessary because a man in Paul's day would marry only a woman. It stands to sense. Well, it stands to sense that Paul is not talking about marriage if he uses a man and a woman and links whatever this verb is, whatever it means not to touch a woman. Uh, Paul is not using words carelessly. Paul is not multiplying or adding words when he says a woman. And we'll see that when we note the second problem that we have in the NIV. Paul uh, does not use the verb to marry. He uses this word touch. So what does this word touch mean? How is it used in scripture and in Greek literature? And it is not used in the New Testament and it's not used in Greek literature to mean to marry. So we can be absolutely sure Paul is not saying it is not good for a man to marry. The verb touch as used here and we're putting some more detail up on the screens this morning because there is detail of language here unusually so the verb means to have sexual relations with. The verb touched means to have sexual relations with. Nine times it's used in Greek literature outside the Bible in that way. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's why Proverbs 6, 29 is up, it's the verb that is used there. Clearly that context means to have sexually. So literally verse 1b reads, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now if you're using the NIV and you've got a footnote, you will see that that is there as a footnote. And that is in fact the correct translation. The New King James translates it literally. It is good for a man not to touch a woman doesn't give the background. Um, it's little, it um, translates the word very woodenly. That's better than interpreting the word wrongly, which is what the NIV has done. So the next issue, having settled that then, is whose words are these? Whose words are these? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Are they Paul's? Well, most people assume they are. But remember, every scripture has a context. Immediate context and a wider context. So we immediately have a problem if we say these words are Paul's. Because Paul on the one hand says 
it's good not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in the previous chapter, he said God intended that the man and the woman would become one flesh. And so it was from the beginning. And moreover, in verse 5, Paul will say, stop defrauding one another. Stop abstaining from sexual relations with one another. So we set Paul contradicting himself within the same passage. If we say these words are Paul's words. Now here's the difficulty. The difficulty is that in the original Greek there are no inverted commas. So when you get direct speech or something that someone has said, it will not be in inverted commas. But this phrase is almost certainly a phrase from within Corinth. It's this group that have rejected sexual relations within marriage. They are saying it is good for a man. It's better for a man. It's more spiritual not to have sexual relations with a woman, with your wife, in other words. And so, it is their slogan. It's similar to the slogan we had in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. So Paul brings in their argument, and then what he does in the following verses is he critiques it. In verses 5 to 7. Now, there's something else we're going to bring up on the screens here. I'm sorry to, to have to bring this out, in a sense, and, and burden you with this. But it does show where the emphasis lies in Paul's argument. Sometimes in writing a passage of scripture, you'll get this kind of pattern. You'll get five statements. You'll get one, two, three, two, one. And you see what the, the structure is that the third one is the middle one but it's also the one that the, where the emphasis lies. So what you have in verse 1b is the Corinthian position. What you have in verse 2 and 4 is Paul's correction of that position. Then what you have in verse 5 is Paul's command which is stop depriving one another of the sexual relationship. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul um, goes back to two, uh, 2 to 4 and he says, well actually, I can make one concession to your position in Corinth. And then in verse 7, he's going back to verse 1b and he's stating his position over against the Corinthian position. So do you see the logic? There's a balance. So statements um, 1 and five go together, two and four relate to each other, and three is, as it were, the meat on the bones. So, um, uh, I, ho I hope that's not too much, but I'm convinced that that gives us a very clear interpretation and a safe interpretation of this passage. And it is for that reason that we have our title this morning, Do Not Abstain from Sexual Relations Within Your Marriage. That's what Paul is saying. So, 
Verse 5 then is the key. So what does Paul say? He says, do not deprive. Literally it is, do not defraud each other. It's the same word as we have had already in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, where the man was taking another man to court and Paul said, is it not better that you be defrauded? Is it not that better that you lose out what you're entitled to? So when Paul uses this word here, do not defraud one another, he's saying, do not cause the other to lose out on what they are entitled to. And it's a present imperative. And it's in the second person plural. And it means, therefore, stop defrauding each other. Now, if you, this afternoon, say to your children, stop fighting What does that mean? Well, it means they are already fighting. You're not saying in an hour's time, don't begin to fight. You're saying, stop doing it now. And that's what Paul is saying here. Stop defrauding one another now. They're already doing it. And then in verses 2 and 4, Paul builds, um, builds the argument Uh, builds from the foundation up to his command. He lays the foundation for his command of verse 5. Stating, first of all, verse 2, that a man and a woman should have sexual relations. Look at verse 2, and again we're going to put up some things on the screen. Let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. And the word have, sorry if the black's not working against the purple, we need to get our colours coordinated. Um, um, maybe it works better from where you are, it's okay. Yeah, well, have means to have sexually. It does not mean get married. It doesn't mean get married. Um, it means to have sexually or to be in sexual relationships with And it's used with this meaning eight times in the Greek edition of the Old Testament. I'm not going to bother you with those, but I want you to note 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, because it's the same verb, where a man was having his stepmother. And Paul wasn't thinking, well, he's just got married to her, and they're having a nice, um, you know, platonic relationship. No, Paul very clearly in chapter 5 understands have to mean that they're having sexual relationships with each other or sexual relations with one another. So it's the same verb as chapter 5, verse 1. So what's Paul commanding? He's commanding in verse 2 that a husband and a wife, a man and a woman within marriage should have sexual relations with each other. He is firing a shot, an unmistakable shot at this stage across the bows of those who are purists, those who are ascetics, who believe and insist that Christians should abstain from sexual relationships. Now, verse 2, Paul gives the reason. Paul, why is this so important? 
can they not be free to do, um, to have sexual relations if they want to or if they don't want to? Well, yes, Paul will give that freedom. But when people start telling others, you can't because you're less spiritual. Then Paul says, no, that's wrong. And he says, I'll tell you why it's wrong. Nevertheless, on account of sexual immorality, is the translation in every version as far as I know, but it should be the plural, sexual immoralities. Why the plural? Well, is it not because Paul has already addressed immorality of two different kinds within the church concerning those who are not married or with those who are not married. Think of the man with a stepmother. That was a case of immorality. And then think also uh, of those uh, who in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20 that we looked at last week said, well, the body is for sex and sex is for the body and I can have as much as I want with whomever, whenever and however I want. Two different kinds of sexual immorality. And so, to me, it makes perfect sense that Paul would say, nevertheless, on account of sexual immoralities that I've already talked to you about in chapter 5 and 6. Let each man um, have sexual relations with his wife. Because the reality shows, and statistics show, that if a man and woman in our age and generation, and it is true of Corinth, a place of sexual looseness and liberty, if a man and woman don't have it in their marriage, they'll have it outside their marriage. That's the sad reality. And that's what Paul is saying. I don't want that to happen to you. How many relationships, how many marriages have been damaged? And part of it is because um, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, have lost that unity and that union and closeness, which they still desire at their age and stage and life, and they get close to someone of the opposite sex. And before you know it, they are in bed together. That's what Paul is guarding against. Then in verse 3, Paul supports his teaching for the sexual relationship within marriage. And again, he's, he's still correcting this error of the purists. And he's doing it now from another angle. Let the husband render to his wife the debt due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. That makes some feminists blissful under the collar. But notice Paul's balance. It's not addressed to the woman. It's addressed to the woman and the man. It's addressed to the husband as much as to the wife. Paul presents this aspect of marriage in the same terms as every other aspect of marriage. That's part of Christian marriage. And he says you have a responsibility. Why? 
should a Christian man come home from work to his wife in the evening instead of going and meeting up with his friends and spending time with them and neglecting his wife because he has a duty. He promised to leave and to cleave. And if he's been away at work all day and his wife has been managing the home and taking responsibility for other things, he's a very foolish man, a very unwise man. He says, well, actually, my friends come before my wife this evening. And my wife, my friends come before my wife once a week. And I'm going to go and see them. You see, there's all kinds of duties and responsibilities that we take to each other when we get into marriage. It's summed up in some of the words of the marriage service that we will have and hold for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, sickness and death, uh, till death, sickness and health, till death us do part. Paul would have added in there. And the sexual relationship is your responsibility to your spouse as long as your body and her body and the and medical circumstances and other things um, uh, uh, permit that. You cannot say that you are going to abstain from it. Gordon Fee comments, married couples are indebted to each other sexually. And the verb here is the verb which means to pay a debt. To pay a debt. That's why your wife, it's one of the reasons why the woman to whom you're married married you. The husband to whom you're married married you. Because they felt a desire for physical closeness. Do not defraud them. In verse 4, Paul goes still further, correcting uh, uh, again the error of the purists. Teaching that when a man and woman marry, each surrenders their body to the other. Again, feminists bristle. I give my body away. I don't give my body away to any man. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul says the wife gives her body to the husband and the husband gives his body to the wife. It cuts both ways. And I want you to notice uh, at this point the wife um, does not have authority over her body but the husband and likewise the husband does not have authority over his body but the wife the word but there's actually a lot of buts in this chapter I counted 24 which tie in with the word D-E in Greek and I think it's 5 with the word A-L-L-A well this is the A-L-L-A one and this is the big one this is the real but the other is much more on the other hand or moreover or now it's a sort of a conjunction but this A-L-L-A is stand up and notice this is a but, but, but. Um, it's like what a parent would say to their child. The child is, is wanting something and the parents say, but you have forgotten. And that's what Paul is saying here, but. And what's he saying? Neither can act unilaterally in any matter or any decision. The two have become one. And this word have authority 
It's the same word as we have in Second, First Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve. Do you remember when he talked about the man who goes to the woman outside of marriage or the prostitute? He gives over his authority to her. So Paul is saying, men, when you get married, women, when you get married, you actually handed over your freedom for your life to your spouse. No longer is there two. There is one. There's got to be a unity of thinking. A unity of believing. A unity in doing. A unity also, Paul says, in the sexual relationship. So, we've dealt with the central part, the meat, Paul's commands. And in verses 2 to 4 now we've dealt with their position and how Paul uh, answers that, their position. Now, in verse 6, Paul says, well, I can make one exception. I can concede to what you say. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman on one occasion, in one circumstance. And what is that? Um, it is um, um, where am I at here? I've lost my place. Um, yes, sorry, the end of verse 5 that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. It's verse 5b and 6. So, there is um, there's one exception. But I want us to note this. Even this abstinence, this exception, is an option. It's an option to a couple that they may avail of. It's not an absolute requirement that Paul lays down. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. He's not going to force any couple to follow this exception. And so in what circumstances may a couple forgo sexual relations within their marriage? Verse 5, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Paul anticipates there may be a need. There may be a situation, there may be an issue in their lives that they need to fast about and pray about. They need to find additional time and opportunity to do that. And one possibility in such circumstances would be to use the time they set aside for one another and to set it aside for prayer. But even then, if you're going to follow the concession, you've got to meet two conditions to ensure that abstinence doesn't lead to immorality and that abstinence is for their good. He says, except with consent. In other words, I as a husband can't decide to do this unilaterally. And then, Paul says, here's the second condition, for a time. This can't be open-ended. Um, I remember in school, whenever we had, um, there, was some, there was a prefect that was suspended from his duties 
And there was a phrase at the end of it in Latin, Sine Dei. And we went into our French teacher in the afternoon and said, what does that phrase mean? And it meant without date. We cannot say to our wives, sorry, or to our husbands, the sexual relationship is suspended sine day without date. That's what Paul's saying. It's for a time. So both have to agree. It's got to be for the purpose of prayer, and it's got to be for a time. And then Paul says, come together again. And uh, some would say, well, Paul, you're wondering, you're a bit of a control freak. He isn't. He's a loving pastor. He knows sinful human nature. And he wants them to come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't think he means by that that here are people um, who have a natural disposition for um, for immorality, but what he's saying is it's not within your gift. Let's remember God has given you the gift of marriage. He's given you the desire for intimacy. And he said, you need to come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you to go elsewhere to look for the meeting of that need for intimacy. Now that brings us, and we're almost through, to verse 7. For I wish that all people to be even as myself. That is, what is his self? What is his situation? What is his status? Again, he's going back to verse 1. And what they have said, well, his is unmarried. Here's the but. It's the but, but again. It's the strong but. But. Um, and each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that now, Paul says, yeah, I'm single. I'm quite happy with singleness. I'm up for singleness. But it is a matter that God determines. Now, you've always got to ask questions of Scripture. And a couple of questions jump out of this point. Why does Paul refer to his own status? I'm single. Why does he state his own preference um, for himself and I wish that others um, the, for the status of singleness and then add this qualification that makes his status and preference of no standard that others must obey? Well, it seems that those who champion the cause of abstinence from sexual relations in Corinth, they've tried to muscle in on Paul's case. Oh, Paul's not married. And Paul then, he's our example. Uh, and um, so we should be following him in this matter. They're saying something like this. It's good for a man not to touch, not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul does not have sexual relations with a woman. And you should be like us. You should be like Paul. So in verse 7, Paul states his own preference and status in the light of their slogan in verse 1. And the point Paul makes is, I will not be a patron of or an ambassador for your cause. My singleness, and we'll come back to this, is a gift from God. My singleness 
We'll come back to it, we'll see it later. Facilitates the kingdom work to which God has called me. Think about it. He's going all over the known world to the Gentiles. How could a man have a wife and do that? Different for Peter. He was located in Jerusalem. But Paul's been sent by God all over the place. And so Paul cannot be made the norm for others. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. There's no apostles in Corinth. In fact, marriage, Scripture teaches in the wider context, is the norm, is the gift that God usually gives. Singleness is a special or is, is a gift. So it's God, not Paul, who determines whether a person will marry and have sexual relations or remain single and not have sexual relations with a woman. Now briefly, uh, there are six applications I want to make as we close. First of all, neither marriage nor neither marriage nor celibacy is a higher calling of God. One is not higher or better than the other. Each status is a grace gift. Paul uses the phrase in verse 7, a gift, and literally it is a charismata. So you're all charismatics. If you're a widow, you're a charismatic. If you're married, you're a charismatic. If you're single, you're a charismatic. So you'll find some delight in telling that to your charismatic friends. I'm a charismatic. But that's the word that Paul uses here. He says it is a grace gift of God, either marriage or singleness. And God distributes according to his purpose for the individual's life. Um, and yes, uh, marriage is the more frequent, um, but it's not the better or the higher. And as young people, it's by the word, by prayer and by providence that you will discover which gift God has given to you. And we believe that when we come into those of us that are married, when we lose our marriage partner, we believe that that too is under the control of God. And so we're given the gift then of singleness again. And that does require adjustment. We'll never get used to it, but we will learn to live with it and to serve in it. Secondly, sexual union within marriage is a good and beautiful gift of God and is to be pursued by Christians to the glory of God. The fact the world uses and abuses sexual union should not lead Christians to think or speak negatively of sexual union or to abstain from it within marriage. Third, and I've got to just rush through these because our time is gone, to abstain from sexual relations within marriage is not the will of God and can only happen by joint agreement and for the short term. Or, obviously, there can be circumstances that determine it as well. Providences. But to abstain on any sort of rational, spiritual ground and try to justify that from scripture on any other grounds is a denial 
of God's gift to you. It's a denial of God's gift to you. It's to defraud your partner and it's to leave both you and your spouse open to the subtle temptation of the devil. Sexual immorality outside your marriage. Fourthly, sexual union in our culture is often portrayed as the husband's privilege and the wife's duty. That is utter rubbish. Completely and utterly unscriptural. The three balanced pairs of verses two and four, two to four, the husband, the wife, where Paul addresses both, and each in turn knock that idea on the head. Sexual union is the privilege and duty of both husband and wife together. Fifthly, the frequency of the sexual relationship and the fruit of the sexual union, the bearing of children, are matters that husband and wife have to discuss and decide together. One party cannot lay down the law. I've heard single women saying, if I get married, I will not have any children. I'm sorry, you do not have that right, or else you better stay unmarried. Sixthly, and finally, Christian marriage is to reflect the relationship of Christ to his church. This has all been very um, much based around ourselves today, but that's what the passage is. And I, I can't do anything about that, but as I come to the end of it, and as I was come to the end of my preparation, I thought, let's lift the whole thing then again and put it in the context that this is not just about good dynamics. This is about the glory of God. And Christian marriage is to reflect the relationship of Christ to his church, namely his self-giving love for his bride on the cross and the bride's joyful submission to him in salvation. And husbands, you are to be self-giving towards your wives. Self-giving love is to mark your leadership. And wives, you are to be marked by a joyful submission to the one that God has given you to be your head. Do not abstain from such relationships within your marriage. It is not glorifying to God. That's what Paul is saying. Rather glorify God in your body, in your marriage, in your union together. Amen.